Hi, friend. I'm Doug Pratt, pastor at First Church in Bonita Springs, and I want to talk to you today about the toughest questions of life. Those are the questions that begin with the word why. They're often posed abstractly and philosophically, but more importantly, they come out of the deepest emotions and experiences of life, out of pain and disappointment and betrayal and anger and fear and worry. We cry out, why? Why did this happen? Or why did it not happen when I prayed for that? Why did something occur as a natural disaster? Why did a person or a company or a nation do that? Why are some people victims of violence in war or crime and others are untouched? Why have some people died young and others lived a long life? Why have some experienced a quick end to their life with a, a sudden bursting of a brain blood vessel, while others' brains deteriorate slowly over years and years by Alzheimer's or some other dementia to the point where the body is still alive, but the brain is gone. The lights are on in the house, but there's nobody at home. Why have some people contracted terrible diseases. Other people of the same family and the same DNA did not. Why have some things occurred that were unprecedented? Why was I born into the family I was rather than another family or into the nation where I was rather than another? All of these questions, they puzzle us and everybody's asked them. My guess is if you could remember every single why question that you've ever vocalized or thought and were to write them all down, say, on a legal pad. It would not fill the first page, front and back, but the whole tablet. So how do we answer these why questions? Or how do we live with them? That's the challenge that we're going to be dealing with in this three-part series of reflections. The question of why is one that is uniquely human to ask. We human beings are the only creatures, at least on this planet, that even pose the question of why. Animals live their lives, they're born, they do their thing according to their instincts or their DNA or how they're trained. They die and they don't wrestle with the questions that we do. This gives us an interesting hint to human nature and how our creator fashioned us. We humans have the mind that can formulate and grasp the concept of cause and effect. And therefore, we wonder. When something happens, an effect, what was the cause? That's the inspiration for all human science, trying to figure out why things happen. But even more than just understanding a sequence that leads to an end result, we wrestle with the questions of purpose and meaning. Because we have an inborn sense, I believe our Creator gave it to us, that there must be and seems to be some kind of purpose or meaning to life. 
And therefore, we struggle to know how different events fit into that higher purpose or meaning. Now, this is a unique set of circumstances that makes sense only from the perspective of believers in God. Atheists may pose questions of why as weapons to attack their intellectual opponents, believers, but ultimately there is no rational basis for them. For if an atheist whose fundamental assumption is that the universe exists purely by chance, randomness, with no ultimate purpose, then it makes no sense for them to feel a sense of unfairness or injustice when things occur that they don't like if, in fact, all of the universe is without any meaning or purpose. It is those who believe in a God who created us for a purpose and for meaning who wrestle with these questions and always have. For Christians, it's been thousands of years of pondering the why questions. And before Christ came, the Jews, the Hebrews, wrestled with the same profound issues and questions, wondering why things happen. This is the toughest issue in all of theology. There are a number of them that uh, cause us to struggle and to ponder, including the issues of predestination and the Trinity and eternity and the incarnation and atonement, but none of them are as difficult or as profound as what theologians call theodicy. That comes from two ancient words for God and justice or justify. How do you explain or justify what God does in the world? This is a profound question. It's one that uh, is sometimes posed as this classic dilemma. If God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. In other words, if we believe that an all-powerful God who can do anything he wishes has a, a perspective of love and an orientation to be merciful to human beings, and God theoretically could accomplish that consistently and uniformly, then how do we explain the obvious existence of pain and suffering in human beings. That is the paradox. A paradox is something that seems to be logically inconsistent, two things that seem to not go together, but they actually do. It's the paradox of theodicy, of God's goodness and God's power in relation to man's suffering that is the great question we deal with. And it's a paradox that continues to puzzle us in providing an easy answer. You know, in the ancient world, there was a story, a legend of a knot that was so twisted and so tightly pulled together that it was impossible to pull apart, impossible to untie. That Gordian knot, according to legend, is what Alexander the Great took a knife to and sliced it in half. There have been brilliant thinkers over the past centuries who have attempted to take a knife to the Gordian knot of theodicy, of, of the why questions of life. 
candidly, none of those answers have completely satisfied our longing for a resolution. And we will not jump to any kind of a simplistic uh, attempt. You know, one of Murphy's laws says, for every complex problem, there's a simple, easy to understand wrong answer. And because of that, we're not going to attempt to offer simplistic answers because they'd be wrong. But as we try to understand and explore the great mystery of why, I want us to be careful about our definitions of two very crucial concepts. What is evil and what is good? As we think about what is evil, I want you to understand the distinction between natural evil and moral evil. Natural evil has to do with things that happen that human beings perceive as a threat to them that come from the natural world. This is an amazing planet we live on. It is so perfectly suited to sustain a life like ours. We are blessed in more ways than we've even been able to understand or discover. The rotation of the earth, providing day and night, the tides and the winds, the way the world is so perfectly suited with four seasons to enable life, the way sun and rain provide for photosynthesis that plants might bloom, and the way those plants, how amazing, breathe out oxygen, which we animals consume, breathing out carbon dioxide, which the plants breathe. How amazing our human bodies are and how beautifully fashioned by our Creator that all of these complex interlocking systems work together for many people seamlessly decade after decade. There are many things about nature that are indeed benign and beneficial to human beings, but there are times when nature becomes hostile to us. It was in September of 2017 that wind came off of the African continent and began to move westward. And as that wind moved over the warm Atlantic Ocean's waters, it began to absorb and pick up moisture and form clouds, and they began to swirl in a semi, uh, in a circular, uh, counterclockwise fashion. At the same time, another current of wind coming from the Pacific Ocean crossed Mexico into the Western Caribbean. And that wind interacted with the westbound wind to steer it away from the mountainous island of Cuba, which would have broken up the storm, and right into the Florida Peninsula. We called it Irma, and we felt it was a great threat to us. For as it made landfall as a Category 4 hurricane, first in the Keys and then north into Collier County and all the way up the state, it was our enemy. It threatened our homes and even our lives, though thankfully uh, no one was lost directly because of that storm. But that storm we gave the personalized name Irma to was impersonal and had no intent to hurt because it had no mind. It was just impersonal nature. On the micro level, there are times when cells, due to a microscopic 
alteration or corruption of DNA or the genetic code, healthy cells begin to grow rapidly and consume cells until those healthy cells have become cancerous. And we call them malignant as if they were evil in their intent, and yet they have no brain. The same thing is true of a virus that had never been experienced before that suddenly emerged sometime in the fall of 2019 in or around Wuhan, China, and it has become a great enemy to the human race. And yet it doesn't have a brain and isn't intending to do evil. But then there is moral evil, and that's what we need to notice, as only able to be done by moral beings. Moral evil can be defined as that which is contrary to the nature of a good and perfect holy God. Only human beings and superhuman beings, at least that we know of, angels we call them, are capable of committing moral evil. The reason why an act by a human being contrary to God's will and his character is seen as evil is because that creature has the ability implanted by its creator to know good and evil and to choose wrong rather than right. We have a conscience inside of all of us. It is like the software, the operating system programmed into our computers. That conscience alerts us and tells us right and wrong. We all have this sense of inner justice, but the conscience is not infallible and it's also not invincible. And by human choices or the choices of other moral agents, a conscience can be dulled, perhaps even to the point where it's been silenced completely. In a Hitler, a Stalin, a bin Laden, a Saddam Hussein, who have lived all their lives so repeatedly committing moral evil that the good impulses in them have been stifled completely. And whenever we commit a moral evil, we are doing so with consequences. And that explains all the sad headlines that we read in our newspapers, see on our TV, or have alerted on our phones the constant drumbeat of the effect of moral evil in our world, causing tremendous pain. Whether it be violence, war, prejudice, injustice, cruelty, abuse, fraud, corruption, all of those sins, that's what the Bible calls them. Without question, they are sins, and they are a direct disobedience of God, and they have an effect upon us. Even the sins that we might think are victimless that cause damage to our conscience, and they are also sins against God. Well, that's what we mean by evil in both its natural and its moral sense. But what about good? Just as evil is defined as that which is contrary to the purpose, plan, and character of God, in the same way, good is defined only by the ultimate definition, God himself. He is the source of all goodness. He is the template upon which all human efforts are judged. And when 
good happens. It is ultimately defined by God's long-term purpose. We have a tendency to mistakenly think that something is good if it feels like it benefits us in that given moment, and bad if it seems to be to our detriment. But there's a higher perspective that cautions us to not assume that what we think is good is automatically the ultimate good. Think about a parent whose six-year-old asks mom or dad if they can have candy for dinner that night. And when mom or dad says, no, you're going to eat your meat and your carrots, not Tootsie Rolls for your meal, the child thinks, I have a bad parent because they define good as what they want in that moment. But we all know that ultimately the best parents choose what is for the long-term good in the same way God ordains good for his people. But it is not necessarily what we in the moment with a very limited perspective might think. When Christians say God is good, we mean his ultimate purpose and intent for us in this life and in the life to come is ultimately better than any we could grasp or, or uh, comprehend. So that's a perspective to grasp on the issue of evil and good. But instead of just thinking abstractly, we're going to now deal with the practical implications. And for the rest of our time, we're going to be thinking about how to live in the midst of these unanswered, maybe unanswerable questions. And we will do so recognizing that this is where we live day to day. I've had the privilege of being a pastor for 40 years and more. And in this time, I have been welcomed and permitted to look into the souls of people struggling with all of the why questions of life. They have allowed me, opening the window, to see what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. And frankly, there are many times when I have been speechless in the presence of parents who are struggling with the suicide of their son. Why didn't we see the signs? Or with a young couple who are grieving over their infertility or a miscarriage. Or with a person who has lost their spouse, their life partner of 57 years. I have been speechless in talking with someone a family who came home from a vacation and found that their home had been burglarized and they felt so violated and so vulnerable. I have been speechless by the bedside of a person breathing their final breaths in a hospice home as the children are gathered around and asking, why did mom or dad have to end their days in this agony? I have been with people who have felt the pain of losing their home in a house fire and all of the why questions that come. Well, all I can do is listen and care, but I am not just an abstract observer of life, for I have been a personal recipient of some of the pain and the suffering of life. I have experienced People doing things wrong to me and uh, betrayal and disappointment and pain. And so have you. 
I cannot completely understand what you have experienced. You cannot completely understand what I've experienced. But we can walk together and we can help one another to deal and live with the great why questions of life. I hope you'll join me for part two.